0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Stripe. Tap to pay on iPhone, and Stripe can help you grow your business's revenue and reach through accepting more in-person, contactless payments right from an iPhone. To learn how, visit Stripe.com slash tap iPhone.
1: This is the TED Radio Hour. I'm Guy Raz. And today, we're going to start in Liberia, 30 years ago.
3: And I remember being in the fourth grade. It was in in, uh, February of that year and and being pulled out of school uh, abruptly.
1: This is Raj Punjabi, and Raj grew up in Monrovia.
3: There were hundreds of people coming into the city from the rural countryside, fleeing war,
1: some of them others um, with gunshot wounds, seeking care. Of course, at the time, Raj didn't exactly know what was going on. He was just nine years old. And three days later, they the rebels captured the
3: only international airport. And so at that point, there was a, a panic. My father, them being Indian citizens, had been helping... The Indian embassy to evacuate people, and that's what ended up happening. Is that we, my father and my, um, and my mother, made a plan one night that we would we would try to get evacuated. And she said, "Pack the things you need for a month." And I packed a bunch of action figures. <laughs> uh, and and we were put into a white van and then rushed to the center of town where an airfield had been commandeered. And it was a cargo, you know, 1960s sort of Russian military cargo plane that had been brought in to evacuate people. I I just remember sitting there um, sweating, and it was hot, and and looking out the hatch and seeing right in front of us there were hundreds of others, um, people that looked like my classmates, you know, in in fourth grade who held Liberian passports that were uh, restrained from jumping into that, onto that plane with us Um, and ultimately we we left those people behind and uh, we took off and ended up here in the United States. We ended up in North Carolina.
1: Raj's dad opened a clothing store and Raj would eventually graduate from college and then go on to medical school but in Liberia two back-to-back civil wars left the country brutalized. It had been
3: 15 years since I escaped that airfield, but it did not escape my mind. I was a medical student in my mid-20s, and I wanted to go back to see if I could serve the people we'd left behind. Raj
1: tells his story on the TED stage.
3: When I got back, what I found was utter destruction. The war had left us with just 51 doctors to serve a country of 4 million people. It would be like the city of San Francisco having just 10 doctors. So if you got sick in the city where those few doctors remain, you might stand a chance. But if you got sick in the remote rural rainforest communities where you could be days from the nearest clinic, I was seeing my patients die from conditions that no one should die from, all because they were getting to me too late. Imagine you have a two-year-old who wakes up one morning with a fever, and you realize that she could have malaria, and you know that the only way to get her the medicine she needs would be to take her to the riverbed, get in a canoe, paddle to the other side, and then walk for up to two days through the forest just to reach the nearest clinic. One billion people live in the world's most remote communities, and despite the advances we've made in modern medicine and technology, our innovations are not reaching the last mile. These communities have been left behind because they've been thought too hard to reach and too difficult to serve. Illness is universal, access to care is not, and realizing this lit a fire in my soul. No one should die because they live too far from a
1: doctor or clinic. Accessing better health is, in most parts of the world, a privilege rather than a right. Where you live and what your circumstances are can mean the difference between clean and dirty air or even the ability to see a doctor. So today on the show, we're going to hear from TED speakers with ideas on how to increase access to a healthier way of life. And for Raj Punjabi, he realized the typical medical system of patients visiting doctors and nurses just wasn't accessible for lots of people in Liberia. So to bring healthcare to rural communities, he needed help.
3: And help in this case didn't come from the outside. It actually came from within. It came from the communities themselves. Meet Musu. Way out in rural Liberia, where most girls have not had a chance to finish primary school, Musu had been persistent. At the age of 18, she completed high school, and she came back to her community, she saw that none of the children were getting treatment for the diseases that they needed treatment for, like deadly diseases, like malaria and pneumonia. So she signed up to be a volunteer. Now, there are millions of volunteers like Musu in rural parts around our world, and we got to thinking community members like Musu could actually help us solve a puzzle. So we started asking some questions. What, what if we could reorganize the medical care system? What if we could have community members like Musu be a part or even be the center of our medical team? What if Musu could help us bring health care from clinics and cities to the doorsteps of her neighbors? And Musu was 48 when I met her. And despite her amazing talent and grit, she hadn't had a paying job in 30 years. So, so what if technology could support her? What if we could invest in her with real training, equip her with real medicines, have her have a real job? Well, in 2007, I was trying to answer these questions, and my wife and I were getting married that year. We asked our relatives to forego the wedding registry gifts and instead donate some money so we could have some startup money to launch a nonprofit. I promise you I'm a lot more romantic than that. We ended up raising $6,000, teamed up with some Liberians and Americans, and launched a nonprofit called Last Mile Health. And our goal is to bring a health worker within reach of everyone, everywhere. We designed a three-step process, train, equip, and pay, to invest more deeply in volunteers like Musu to become paraprofessionals, to become community health workers.
1: And that concept of, of community health workers is not new, right? I mean, this has been around for a long time. That's
3: right. That's right. You know, I had a chance to go to Alaska, where they've had a program for 50 years and have trained village-based uh, community health aides to do everything from diabetes care to uh, care for patients with um, uh, potential heart attacks, screening them. So I'd seen the power of that when you combine a focus on uh, what we call radical task sharing, you know, the sharing of medical tasks with others other than doctors. And um, we wanted to apply that In Liberia, and so that—that's what you know gave rise to last mile health.
1: And and how do you train people to, to, to do this?
3: Uh, So I was recently with a community health worker named Ruth, and Ruth, uh, as an adult, she couldn't find work, up until about three years ago in 2016, when our team hired her as a community health worker. So what does that mean? So over a few weeks, a nurse trained Ruth. Equipped her with medicines and supplies, taking advantage of this revolution in biotechnology. We we gave her a $1 handheld test for malaria, which is the biggest killer of children in Liberia, antibiotics to treat pneumonia, injectable contraceptives to provide to women in the community who were uh, wanting long-term contraception. And uh, she was also equipped with a smartphone with with video lessons on topics like assessing a child for malnutrition. And Ruth now is able to serve the daily health needs of her neighbors door-to-door, and she can do over 30 different medical skills. And, of course, they don't do neurosurgery. They also uh, don't just uh, pretend like they can care for a complex medical condition. They they, they are connected to a network of nurses, outreach nurses, who come and visit them and coach them every month. And those outreach nurses connect the patients who need higher levels of care to a network of clinics and hospitals. In December 2013, something happened in the rainforest across the border from us in Guinea. A toddler named Emil fell sick with vomiting, fever, and diarrhea. He lived in an area where the roads were sparse and there had been massive shortages of health workers. Emil died, and a few weeks later his sister died, and a few weeks later his mother died, and this disease would spread from one community to another, and it wasn't until three months later that the world recognized this as Ebola. Ebola. When every minute counted, we had already lost months, and by then, the virus had spread like wildfire all across West Africa and eventually to other parts of the world. Businesses shut down, airlines started canceling routes. At the height of the crisis, when we were told that 1.4 million people could be infected, when we were told that most of them would die, when we had nearly lost all hope. I remember standing with a group of health workers in the rainforest where an outbreak had just happened, we were helping train and equip them to put on the masks, the gloves, and the gowns that they needed to keep themselves safe from the virus while they were serving their patients. When Ebola threatened to bring humanity to its knees, Liberia's community health workers didn't surrender to fear. They did what they had always done. They answered the call to serve their neighbors. Community members across Liberia learned the symptoms of Ebola teamed up with nurses and doctors to go door to door to find the sick and get them into care. They tracked thousands of people who had been exposed to the virus and helped break the chain of transmission. Some 10,000 community health workers risked their own lives to help hunt down this virus and stop it in its tracks.
1: So, I mean, are you, I don't know, I mean, are you encouraged? Does it, does it, Solution. I'm I'm sort of reluctant to use that word because it's a problematic word. But based on what you have seen so far with with community workers and the last mile challenge, um, yeah. I mean, what what do you think? What are the are the signs encouraging?
3: I'm glad you're you're critical of the word solution as as I am, and I, and I think it's a part of the solution. I mean, let, let's make no mistake. You know there there needs to be more hospitals. There hmm. need to be more. Advances in cancer therapy, in personalized gene therapy, but you know Liberia has now launched a national program to get a worker like Ruth in every last community uh, in rural areas, and, and they have a program of about thirty-five hundred community health workers and nurses that then support them, and they've done extraordinary things. I mean, two and a half million visits, uh, nine hundred thousand kids uh, have been treated for malaria or tested for malnutrition. Um, they've they've. Uh, improved the vaccination coverage. They've improved the skilled birth attendance. Medical care is up by 50% for, for children. It turns out this makes economic sense as well, right, for Every dollar, there was a study done for every dollar invested in professionalizing a community health worker. In in other words, supervising them, paying them, training them as a paraprofessional, as a a real part of the healthcare team. There's $10 of return to the society because jobs get created where uh, where unemployment is high. Healthcare leads to healthier, productive life years. And then sometimes in the case of Ebola, as we found in Liberia, uh, you can avert catastrophic epidemics. Now, if every country, especially in low- and middle-income countries, rural poor parts, and, and equip those workers and train them with even just 30 medical skills, I think there should be a lot more. But even the mo- the ones we know work, it turns out the world could save an additional 3 million lives every single year. And that's what stuff we already have in our formulary. You know, we, the, the medicines we already have, the testing kits we already have. So, so, yes, I think the potential's huge. It's a big part of the solution, and it's a neglected part.
1: That's Raj Punjabi. He's a physician and CEO of the nonprofit Last Mile Health. You can find his talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about accessing better health. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from
0: NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover.
4: Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. It's the TED Radio
1: Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about accessing better health. Do you think that access to being healthy in in the developing world and even in the U.S. is is almost a privilege rather than a right?
5: I'm afraid so. I mean, you should know that I feel in the data support that being healthy is not only a matter of having access to individual healthcare services. It's having access to a life that protects your health.
1: This is Mary Bassett. She's a physician. From 2014 to 2018, she was New York City's Health Commissioner.
5: I used to be told in New York City, at City Hall, they'd say there's nothing that she doesn't think is related to health. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you know, I think that's kind of true. There's uh, there's hardly anything that I don't I think doesn't have a bearing on our ability to be healthy.
1: For years, Mary's worked on issues around social justice. And she says she began to approach healthcare through this lens around 30 years ago in Zimbabwe. Mary Bassett picks up her story from the TED stage.
5: When I moved to Harare in 1985, social justice was at the core of Zimbabwe's national health policy. The new government emerged from a long war of independence and immediately proclaimed a socialist agenda. Healthcare services, Primary education became essentially free. The excitement, the camaraderie was palpable. I felt connected not only to an African independence movement, but to a global, progressive public health movement. But we had no idea what lay in store for Africa. Zimbabwe reported its first AIDS case in. 1985, the year I arrived. By the mid-1990s, I told hundreds of people in the prime of life that they were HIV positive. I saw colleagues and friends die. My students, hospital patients, die. In response, my colleagues and I set up a clinic. We did research, we counseled the partners of Infected men about how to protect themselves, we worked hard. And at the time, I believed that I was doing my best. I was providing excellent treatment, such as it was. I worked to show how getting infected was not a moral failure, but instead related to a culture of male superiority, to forced migrant labor, and to colonialism. Whites were largely unscathed. But I was not talking about structural
1: change. I mean, you came there for your technical skills as as a medical professional, and you did what you should have done, which was to work to educate people. But as you say, your tools that were at your disposal were pitifully weak, that actually there was a much bigger problem and challenge that you you didn't feel comfortable talking about. What was that?
5: Well, one of the things is how we're trained as medical doctors, that we think of the patient once they walk through the door and we limit our interactions with them to that encounter. Hmm. And in that sense, I think I was doing my job, but I would argue that the role of of, uh, medical doctors is broader than that, that we have to think about the world from which patients come when they enter our universe and seek health care. So in Zimbabwe, uh, for example, uh, the economy was founded on migrant labor. So routinely, men migrated from their homes in the rural areas in a bid to earn money for their families. But the result was that separations of, of men from their wives was a way of life, and that created a risk which we now know was a risk for HIV infection. So structural things, not just access to medical care, create high-risk situations for poor health. Medical anthropologists such as Paul Farmer, who worked on AIDS in Haiti, call this structural violence. Structural because inequities are embedded in the political and economic organization of our social world, often in ways that are invisible to those with privilege and power. And violence, because its impact, premature death, suffering, illness, is violent. We do little for our patients if we fail to recognize these social injustices. Sounding the alarm is the first step towards doing public health right, and it's how we may rally support to break through and create real change together. So these days, I'm speaking up about a lot of things, even when it makes listeners uncomfortable, even when it makes me uncomfortable.
1: As you make clear in your talk, this experience that you had earlier in your career had a profound effect on the way you think about access and about who gets care and who doesn't get care. So you get to New York, and what do you see?
5: Well, New York City is one of the wealthiest cities in the United States and probably in the world, but it also has many poor people. Uh, Nearly half of the population lives in official poverty. And it's also one of the most highly segregated cities in the United States. And the patterns of health that we see in New York City mirror the residential segregation so that some neighborhoods in New York have life expectancies that are over 25 years shorter than other neighborhoods Hmm. in New York City. That's how big the life expectancy gap is. And it often is a racial gap meaning that the black-white difference in life expectancy is uh, the largest that that New York City data show. Uh And that's why we have to talk about racism. In New York City, premature mortality, that's death before the age of 65, is 50% higher for black men than white ones. So black women in 2012 faced more than 10 times the risk of dying related to childbirth as a white woman, a black baby still faces nearly three times the risk of death in its first year of life, as compared to a white baby. New York City is not exceptional. These statistics are paralleled by statistics found across the United States. And a lot of this is about racial disparities and institutionalized racism. Things that we're not supposed to have in this country anymore, certainly not in the practice of medicine or public health, but we have them and we pay for them in lives cut short.
1: So, I mean, as those statistics make clear, not only institutional racism, but day-to-day exposure to racism will have a pretty profound effect on, on someone's health.
5: Yes, There are institutional factors, there are personal factors, and they all move in the same direction so that a person who's classified as black in the United States is less likely to have access to high-quality health care, is more likely to be subjected to unequal treatment by their physician, and is more likely to live in a neighborhood where they have other obstacles to their health like finding good food or living in a neighborhood where you feel safe going out to exercise or having good public transport that enables you to leave your neighborhood and seek services that may not be available there. So all of those things make a difference. As the hashtag Black Lives Matter movement unfolded, I felt frustrated and angry that the medical community has been reluctant to even use the word racism in our research and our work. The medical community has largely stood by passively as ongoing discrimination continues to affect the disease profile and mortality. And I worry that the trend towards personalized and precision medicine, looking for biological or genetic targets to better tailor treatment, may inadvertently cause us to lose sight of the big picture than it is the daily context where a person lives, grows, works, loves, that most importantly determines population health and, for too many of us, poor health. Our role as health professionals is not just to treat our patients, but to sound the alarm and advocate for change rightfully or not our societal position gives our voices great credibility and we shouldn't waste that
1: so with any problem the first step obviously is to address it and to talk about it even if it's provocative yeah and as you mentioned in your talk I mean some people are uncomfortable with the word racism But you felt that it was important to continue to talk about this and to shine a light on it. Then what? How do we begin to think about fixing this?
5: Well, the first step is to take a racial equity lens and apply it to all the work that we do. That's what we mean when we talk about structural, right? It's not just one institution, it's not just the hospital system. It doesn't just include doctors doing their job, seeing their patients. It's much bigger than that. It extends outside of the health sector, whether we have housing, jobs, education, transport, recreation. It's not just institutions across institutions. It's the culture, everything. We have to look at the context that makes it harder for people to have healthy lives. yeah, And that's how you start fighting racism. That's what I think.
1: (laughs) Mary Bassett is a physician and the director of the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights at Harvard University. You can see her entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about accessing better health... And for many people who live in coal mining towns in Appalachia, being sick is the norm.
6: Well, I remember being in some hollers in West Virginia, and people could look down the street around the small community where they lived and point to one house next to another and say, the person here died of stomach cancer and the person there died of brain cancer. I ran across those kinds of stories a lot, with people just commenting about the degree of illness that surrounded them all the time.
1: This is Michael Hendricks. He's a professor of public health, and Michael spent several years investigating the health impact of a coal mining process called mountaintop
6: removal. This type of mining takes place in central Appalachia, which is steeply hilled and also heavily forested. So the first step is actually to clear-cut the forest, and then they will use explosives and heavy machinery to remove up to 800 or more feet of mountain elevation, and they extract the coal this way, like layers of a cake, working their way down. The mountain is is literally destroyed in the effort to reach the coal seams.
1: And and the water, uh, you know, the the streams at the base of those valleys are just buried in in debris from. Uh, from from the from the blast,
6: that's right. And there is still water that comes out from beneath these buried fills, and that water is contaminated, and it remains contaminated for decades to come back
1: in two thousand and six, Michael had just started working at West Virginia University. And he was hearing so many stories about cancer and disease in mining communities. So he wondered if there was a connection between people getting sick and mountaintop removal. But when he searched the scientific literature in the U.S., he found nothing, almost nothing had been published. So Michael began to look into it himself.
6: We started with some approaches that were fairly quick and easy and less expensive. We analyzed existing data and We did some air quality studies in these areas and found, among other things, that the levels of silica were very high in these communities. Silica is a known lung carcinogen. And um, we found that people who live close to where mountaintop removal occurs have higher death rates for chronic forms of lung disease and heart disease, kidney disease some types of cancer, most notably lung cancer. We started to look at some birth outcomes and we saw higher rates of babies born at low birth weight Hmm. and higher rates of birth defects for mothers who lived in these mining areas during the time that they were pregnant. We started asking people about the health of their family members and found that people were more likely to report that someone in their household had died of cancer in the last five years. Or that some other member of their household had had a serious illness uh, within the last year.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, so so once you started to publish your findings, um, what what was the response? I mean, what what I mean, you're in West Virginia. Coal is a powerful force in that state and in that region. What 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 started to happen?
6: Well, the coal industry didn't care for our work. I think that's putting it mildly. Um, I, I became subject to a couple of um, extreme FOIA requests. Freedom of Information Act. Freedom of Information Act, right. Because you worked for a public university. So they, they said, we want to see all your emails and all this stuff. Exactly. And, and it was a, an extreme request. I'm all for the Freedom of Information Act, but it was a really extreme and harassing request. And, and the attorneys at West Virginia University fought it to their credit. Eventually, it went all the way to the West Virginia Supreme Court, which ruled in our favor that what they wanted to do was a violation of academic freedom. There was a major effort at one point for the coal industry invested millions of dollars to support a counter-movement, partially in response to my work and also others that were examining the harms of this type of mining, to try to conduct industry-sponsored research to try to show that, that it wasn't harmful. Hmm. Um, Members of government in West Virginia, uh, by and large, are supportive of the coal industry even today, and they were not happy about the, the work that we were doing either, and, and would either try to, to deny that it was important or pretend they hadn't heard about it, uh, and, and would continue to support the industry. Here's Michael on the TED stage. I've published over 30 papers on this topic so far. Along with my co-authors, other researchers have added to the evidence, yet government doesn't want to listen, and the industry says it's only correlational. They say Appalachians have lifestyle issues, as though it had never occurred to us to control for smoking, or obesity, or poverty, or education, or health insurance. We controlled for all of those and more. It may seem strange that there is any controversy over the health effects of mountaintop removal mining, But somehow this subject has wound up in a scientific and political twilight zone alongside the debate over climate change or the argument years ago about whether or not smoking caused cancer. In this twilight zone, much of the data seems to point to one conclusion. But the economics or the politics or the prevailing public view insists on the opposite conclusion. When you're a scientist and you think you have a valid insight where the health of entire populations is at stake, but you find yourself trapped in this twilight zone of denial and disbelief what is your moral and ethical obligation
1: in just a moment we'll hear more from michael hendricks about how public awareness might be the key to solving this challenge on the show today ideas for accessing better health i'm guy raz and you're listening to the ted radio hour from
4: npr
0: From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas for accessing better health. And before the break, we were hearing from Michael Hendricks about the research he's done that's shown a clear connection between mountaintop removal and its environmental and health consequences on communities living nearby. But despite the scientific evidence he's gathered, and despite higher rates of cancer and lung disease in these communities, the industry and even some government agencies have attacked Michael's work. Someone like you... Is an expert, and we're living at a time when there is mistrust and dismissal of expert opinion because that is seen as somehow more authentic or um, more true to popular will. But the consequences of that are death. (laughs) Like the consequences of that are people will die because we are being manipulated by hugely powerful forces that don't want us to know the truth about things like public health
6: boy is that ever true these days and i think about mountaintop removal is one example of that but i think about problems that are going to affect everybody not just people that live in central appalachia climate change is maybe a great example and it's just so frustrating but you know there's a a saying i won't be able to remember it exactly that it's hard to convince people to believe one thing when their livelihood depends on them believing another yeah and I think people can rationalize and come up with excuses. And I wonder how, how, to what extent some of these folks that try to argue it and, and deny it, how much they even know that it's true, but they they would rather continue doing what they're doing because it's what they depend on.
1: I mean, if if the people affected by by this um, were wealthy, um. You know, if, if mountaintop removal was happening over Manhattan or San Francisco, uh, do you think that it would be allowed to happen?
6: No, it would not be allowed. Uh, the people that live in these communities do not have a lot of economic or political power. Same is true for people that face other types of environmental threats. We tend to put toxic dump sites and power plants and other polluting sources in poorer areas. Yeah in areas that are populated more likely with by people of color, uh, rich neighborhoods are not going to have these. They won't stand for them. They have more poll over their elected officials. So no, I don't believe for a second that mountaintop removal would occur if, if the coal had been buried under the mountains outside wealthy communities. Um, and if I've talked to lots of people in West Virginia who recognize that coal is dirty, that it's harmful, that it may not really be an ideal choice, but it's what they have, Mm -hmm. and they feel like it's the only option they have for good-paying jobs. There's not a lot of other opportunity, So people see that it's harmful, it's dirty, but it's what we have, and we have to try to support it. That's a very common mindset.
1: So what what do you think we can do to... um, to, to mitigate this problem I mean, is, is the only option from your perspective to continue to research and to publish research even if nothing changes
6: well it has to go beyond research of course there has to be a public awareness a public a willingness to change and there has to be some authority behind that from people in positions to do things there needs to be an explicit investment in the development of sustainable healthy economies mm-hmm. yeah I try to look at a few bright spots that have occurred. There was one, for example, that comes to mind where the EPA under the Obama administration had successfully denied a permit to a new large mountaintop removal site in West Virginia and cited, among other things, cited our research as one of the motivations for that. So it was good to see something like that. Um, The Democratic national platform before the 2016 election had a plank that explicitly called for the end of mountaintop removal mining because of its public health effects. I was really encouraged to see that. They lost the election. So we don't have that kind of of movement that's taking place now, but perhaps it's not too late. Perhaps things can change. I think people respond better to crisis rather than to an impending problem that they don't experience personally yet. So when when the impacts start to hit us in the face more, then I think we'll see a bigger response. And, and I'm still trying to be optimistic that we'll, we'll get things done and we're going to face some hard times, but we're going to make change and get through it. That's
1: Michael Hendricks. He's a professor of public health at Indiana University. You can find his full talk at TED.com. So far on the show, we've explored how external factors can impact our ability to be healthy, from where we live to what we do for work and even how our doctors treat us. But what about what's going on internally?
2: We believe treatment starts with being aware of what is happening in your own body and the way that your own internal physical experience is related to your emotion.
1: This is Rachel Worsman.
2: So my name is Rachel Worsman. I have a Ph.D. in neuroscience
1: Rachel studies and treats addiction, and more specifically, she researches the part of our brain that's connected to forming habits.
2: That part of the brain is called the striatum, and I think I've just kind of had a love affair with that part of the brain since the early days of my studying neuroscience. It serves so many more functions than just preparing and chunking together habits, which is what it's normally known for, but it also in a sense serves as this filter for the rest of the brain to sort of recognize patterns of input coming around, and the striatum gets activated in a particular way that it releases prepackaged programs of behavior. So you can imagine that it's really involved in something like addiction, for one thing, compulsive behaviors of a really wide variety.
1: How would you describe what addiction is? One definition Mm. of addiction would be a choice that somebody makes. Mm. What is your description of what addiction is?
2: I think addiction is a normal human response to pain and a certain internal state. And at its extreme manifestations, when it comes to things like substances, it becomes even less voluntary, because what happens is, as a result of the physiological effects of certain highly addictive substances, be it alcohol or opioids or amphetamines, and the way that they activate the reward system, the brain wiring itself changes. And that makes it even harder to interrupt a particular behavior. Hmm. But I think that humans engage in substance use, to try and feel a little okay when they're feeling restless or irritable or uncomfortable on some sometimes very subtle level. But we soothe ourselves. Some of us soothe ourselves by distracting ourselves with our phones, or some people do it with food. But you continue to do a behavior despite it having negative effects on your social relationships, your family relationships, your employment, your job, your ability to function, those criteria can really apply to a much broader set of behaviors than just injecting heroin or smoking methamphetamine or taking pills or drinking.
1: Rachel Wersman picks up the idea from the TED stage
2: my experiments were exploring how miswiring in the striatum relates to compulsive behaviors, meaning behaviors that are coerced by uncomfortable urges you can't consciously resist. So the striatum, which for sure is involved in compulsive spectrum disorders, is also involved in human social connection and our ability to connect. As it turns out, the social neurochemistry in the striatum is linked to things you've probably already heard of, like oxytocin, which is that hormone that makes cuddling feel all warm and fuzzy. But it also implicates signaling at opioid receptors. There are naturally occurring opioids in your brain that are deeply linked to social processes. The striatum and opioid signaling in it has been deeply linked with loneliness. When we don't have enough signaling at opioid receptors, we can feel alone in a room full of people we care about and love who love us. Loneliness is very dangerous. And it predisposes people to entire spectrums of physical and mental illnesses. Think of it like this. Loneliness creates a hunger in the brain, and our brains signal deep dissatisfaction we become restless, irritable and impulsive. If we don't have the ability to connect socially, we are so ravenous for our social neurochemistry to be rebalanced, we're likely to seek relief from anywhere. And if that anywhere is opioid painkillers or heroin, it is going to be a heat-seeking missile for our social reward system. Is it any wonder people in today's world are becoming addicted so
1: easily? You know, I'm curious about this idea around loneliness, because loneliness is not really something that we think of as a public health crisis. But, I mean, as you point out in your talk, and it seems like there's growing evidence to link loneliness to all kinds of psychological breakdowns, that that being Lonely and having, you know, little or no social interaction can really affect um, somebody who might ordinarily exhibit normal behavior, right?
2: Right. So loneliness affects multiple systems in the brain. And Hmm. um, I think that it's being much more widely recognized as, as potentially the biggest public health crisis that we have right now. And I really also want to differentiate between social isolation and the concept of just not being around other people. Because the thing about loneliness is that you can be surrounded by other people and still feel intensely lonely. There's a dimension of loneliness and social isolation that exists independently of how many people you are interacting with on a daily basis. Hmm. So there's something, too, about the nature and the quality of our interactions and something about our internal experience and the way that those interactions are perceived that contribute to a crisis of loneliness.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean, there are
1: people who, you know, get injured and and then get prescribed opioids and don't become addicted. um, And then there are people who do become addicted, right? What explains it? I mean, why does one kind of person become addicted and and another kind of person doesn't? Is, I mean, is loneliness part of that equation?
2: That's such a good question. And this is where the reward system actually plays into it. Um, Their reward systems may be hypersensitized. And social isolation Is hypersensitizing people's reward systems. So you give it something that's rewarding. You give it something that's anesthetic. And it's like eating after fasting. That food, no matter what it is, is going to taste that much more amazing. So while there are definitely biological predispositions to addiction that some people have those factors more than others, A really reasonable hypothesis is that, with our culture and the lack of connection and our changing lifestyles being the way they are, brain circuits in more people than just have genes, classically that have been identified as associated with addiction, are in a state where they are sort of hungry, and if you give them relief by way of a rewarding substance, it's going to be that much more likely to become something that is a compulsion that escapes control. So we are treating addiction as part of a greater loneliness epidemic, and particularly the opioid overdose epidemic being symptomatic of a lack of connection and quite literally a state of affairs where people's lives are painful.
1: I mean, it feels like such a a creative way to think about addiction, right? Because we addiction is not a new human phenomenon. Humans have been addicted to things since we've probably existed as a species.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: And at times it was punished. At times people were probably killed and obviously incarcerated in the modern era. But um, to me, it seems like the idea of creating more social interactions is really encouraging and inspiring. And, um, but at the same time, really hard mm. because... Um, you know, many people don't have natural communities. I mean, it's and this is now a feature of modern life that, mm-hmm. you know, communities just don't exist in quite the same way they did 20, 30, 40, 50, 100, 1,000 years ago.
2: Yes, and that creates a human condition where there is a low-level amount of pain that I think has been so common for so many centuries that we don't even recognize it. And I think that we tend to think that a lot of behaviors that humans are more likely to do with that background experience. We think of them as human nature, but really they're artifacts of the way that we live and the kinds of communities we do or we don't have. We evolved to be not just in a connected social circle for instrumental aims, you know, we need help gathering food and things like that. That's usually how people think of it, but it goes deeper than that. There is a certain kind of nourishment On a biochemical, physiological level that happens through social interventions. And what Hmm. we really need to consider is that that puts brain circuits in a particular state. Hmm. But like you said, we're not raised in a culture that knows how to connect. We're raised in a culture that has a lot of shame. Mm. And what shame does is shame keeps us isolated. Shame makes us afraid to be vulnerable with one another. Shame is the sense that we are not enough. Mm. And shame makes it very difficult for people to allow other people to see them.
1: So how do you address that?
2: So we've created a system where we can teach just ordinary people from all walks of life how to communicate with one another in ways that minimize shame and normalize the experience of being slightly anxious and awkward. We just make that normal. And so we create an environment that is radically free of judgment. And in an environment where people are radically free of judgment, they feel more comfortable revealing themselves. And then they start to experience this connection where they can just be, exist with a person, in whatever they're going through, and communicate it in a way that the person knows that they are right there with them. It is a magical, powerful—I'm getting chills just talking about it. It's a really, really powerful experience, and frankly, it feels like an addictive drug.
1: That's Rachel Ursman. She's a neuroscientist and co-founder of Seek Healing, an addiction treatment center. You can see her full talk at TED.com. Thanks for listening to our show on Accessing Better Help this week. If you want to find out more about who's on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpur, Rachel Faulkner, Deba Motasham, James De La Husie, J.C. Howard, Katie Monteleone, and Maria Paz Gutierrez, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Kiera Brown. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Michelle Quint. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Greenlight. Want to teach your kids financial literacy? With Greenlight, kids and teens use a debit card of their own, while parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and savings in the app. Get your first month free at greenlight.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
4: On NPR's Throughline, We cannot function for 24 hours without cobalt because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe find NPR's throughline wherever you get your podcasts